The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hey everybody, welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers and I'm sitting here with Brian Casey and Bart Hansen and Sam Katuri and our special guest today, Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, a PhD. She's the author of Under the Sky We Make and she's an Associate Professor of Sustainability Science at the Lund University, uh, the highest ranked university in Sweden. Thank you so much. So nice to have you in Sonoma. Hometown. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Sonoma native. Right. Norbaum Road native. Norbaum oh, yeah. Road native. Norbaum Road native. We, we didn't do the secret handshake. But I know. Well, we you didn't want anybody to see. Yeah. <laughs> Although, te- your Hale Road, right? Do you, no. do you, your parents' at ad- the address is Norbaum Road? Uh, Hale no. Road is like just a private thing. Hale emerged somehow, and I don't approve. Fair I enough. feel right. it should be. Also, you don't stop at the stop sign on High Road, do you? Oh, I might. Do you think I'm a monster? She's <laughs> not going to say that publicly. <laughs> I slow down significantly. If, and if there's if a car coming, I definitely stop. The stop sign was installed after you got your driver's license. It doesn't count. <laughs> Retroactive. <laughs> you know? <on> <laughs> My husband is terrified by how everyone in my family drives. Drive on the road. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, fairly. I think anyone who doesn't live on the road is terrified yeah. by people that drive on the road on Trinity, on Moon Mountain. Um, yeah. And it's... you can drive faster at night. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> right, because the lights will help. Right, you can see you tell can the see deer to go away. Further away. <laughs> <sighs> well, Kimberly, welcome. Um, this um, all started. I don't remember where I read about the book, but I ended up getting a copy of it. And it wasn't until I started reading that I actually realized that you were from Sonoma. Um, and so immediately I was like, oh my gosh, we have to get her on the podcast somehow. Um, we've gone back and forth a number of times. You were always great offering to do it on Zoom. This was coming after we had done the podcast for over a year on Zoom. We have Zoom PTSD. You yeah. were Zoomed out. <laughs> okay. Totally. Yeah. There's something about tasting wine with somebody somewhere else and like, trying to have the same experience. It just doesn't work. I mean, people were great. We had great interviews. We had great opportunities, you know, people that we got to talk with, but this is so much better. <laughs> so anyway, welcome. Thank you. Um, so um, I don't even know where to start. There's so much stuff, but I think what struck me the most about your book is that um, is that the science is all there. It's, well, I, I'll, I'll let you tell that story, but I was struck by how practical you made it and how you convinced me that um, we all have to start doing something. Um, We have to do little incremental things to get started. We have to encourage more other people to do things. Um, And if we don't, um, excuse my French, but we're screwed. Um, And and, and it's interesting. I saw the 60 Minutes last week um, talking about... um, uh, animals dying, you know, and stuff. And the one doctor from Stanford, um, I, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. Everybody knows why um, that is. Um, but he said, the, go ahead, Sam. <laughs> yeah, Petaluma's Petaluma. Right. <laughs> I know. It's certainly not Norbaum Road. Uh, <laughs> urbane and cultured. Yes. No, I, th- 
think, uh, I think uh, one person in this room got all the smarts that were on Norm Palm Road and <laughs> the rest of us didn't. <laughs> um, i sorry. I, this is a perfect opportunity for me to get this out and, and change the microphone to somebody else. Um, was that the planet will be fine. It's just how we exist on the planet is what's going to change. And what we have taken our entire lives and our generations before us entire lives as being normal is not going to be normal anymore. And that's frightening. So anyway, welcome to the winemakers podcast. <laughs> I don't really want to talk so much about how the how, how climate you. change is um, affecting um, the wine industry. I want to try to empower people to do something in their own communities um, and and spread the word, um, maybe sell a few books. And that's not to sell books for you. That's because it's a real practical handbook, I think. Um, even if you only read the um, the it's too long list in the back. <laughs> too long um, didn't read. That yeah, was my mom's idea. Read. There's bullet points at yeah, the end. Yeah. yeah, you can start there. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, um, tell us tell us how you came to um, getting having climate be what you focused your life on. Yeah, well, thank you for those really kind words about the book. And you get an A. It was an excellent summary. Um, I really appreciate that. And I'm so glad you found it practical. I mean, it. a lot of the climate work that I do is rooted in having grown up here and having a family in agriculture. Uh, my grandparents and my dad were in the turkey business, and my parents have had a vineyard for so a really long time. that, Nicholas. That's right. Is that Nicholas? Okay. And, That's and the Nicholas. When, and I think maybe it was probably you that sent it. And and you did a good job in social media when the book was just coming out. And I'm like, oh, I know some people with that last name, but they're not in Sweden. No, <laughs> I've, it, it I've gotten me, pretty it, far afield now. Yeah. yeah, but no, it is. It, it, you know, the heritage and legacy of your family in turkey business in Sonoma Valley, and now that you know those farms are still agriculture. It's now grapes. Um, is is super important to i think um this conversation so yeah absolutely i mean everyone in this room obviously cares about wine as a deep connection to the sonoma valley and the area that we call home which is so beautiful and produces such spectacular wine and, and food and as a place to live it's just incredible i mean being here is such a gift and it really is um a, an animating force for me because so I did my PhD about wine and how the wine industry was being affected already in around 2005 when I, 2004, I guess I started, or even sorry, 2003, I started my PhD focused on wine. And, you know, then it felt more hypothetical and more in the future. And I remember one grower telling me, you know, I don't want to talk about climate change in a decade or a hundred years. I want to know what the weather's doing next week. So it was much more short term thinking. And I see a big change now. I mean, I think people are really have have experienced uh, how the, our climate has changed and is changing and there's so much at stake i mean we have we are alive at such a critical time for the planet and i really care about wine i have heard it's possible to exist without wine so i mean there are other things that are at stake mm. with climate change like <laughs> being able to feed everyone and uh, have a good life for everyone Air um, yeah yeah, clean water. Water to, water to drink. Pretty important, you know. Wine is on that list, though. I yeah, think. absolutely. Happy dryuary for all you <laughs> <laughs> celebrate, I guess. Yeah. I did that last year, 
And I got COVID and I was like, correlation, causation, I don't know. Same thing happened to me. Okay. It's probably not scientific, but yeah, I I didn't do that. Don't tell my wife that. It's (laughs) science-ish. Well, and and I think that um, 15 years ago or 20, you know, when you were starting this, um, we as wine, the wine community and, and, you know, you're parents included hadn't felt the effects of climate change literally on our doorsteps. Um, and I know, I mean, you know, people were on this, but I think 2017 and I'm bringing it up cause I know that, you know, your parents were ev- evacuated in the same way that, that our, you know, home was evacuated. I think um, you were digging fire lines up there, right? I get a lot of credit for posting uh, <laughs> on social media about fire lines being dug. I, um, you know, I was so I Sam, that. Sam was kind of like Marlon Perkins. You know, he was waiting <laughs> to safety the valley floor while his no, brother I was, was. I up was up there a couple times, but not nearly as much as some people who have actual skills and useful <laughs> abilities. But the posting was also a really valuable lifeline for me, being far away right, and you, being so scared and worried and having no idea what's going on and just the scale of the crisis was so huge and right. people can't be everywhere at once so i was grateful for your posting well Sam? and maybe that that's yes do you still have uh one of the books from the uh from the art museum somewhere around here uh you should give her one yeah, yeah. all his tweets were, are in there and yeah. stuff oh wow. i wrote it very fascinating like a, into really like good a, a essay story sort of thing oh i would love to read um that. but i mean i think that we are all there you know to your, the, your point, you were reading those seven thousand miles away, however far away Sweden is, um, is that we all are actively being affected by these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. And and it's a worldwide problem, and we need our communications around the world more than ever to get this thing done. But it has to be rooted in your own community, um, and and it has to be started in your own community. Um, You know, Kimberly, I think maybe it would be a good thing for you to maybe because there are probably people listening that don't know about um, climate change, really. They don't understand um, maybe the carbon footprint, you know, just a a few basic things um, to help people understand what we're going to talk about. Sure. Remedial Climate 101. Yeah, it's almost what you need to know fits almost in a haiku if you don't count it that carefully. So if we really boil it down. What the science tells us is it's warming, it's us, we're sure it's bad, we can fix it. And there's tens of thousands of peer-reviewed studies, there are hundreds of scientific societies, there is just absolute certainty and overwhelming agreement on these key points. So if you want to dive deeper into the science, it's wonderful, and I certainly encourage you to do that. If you want to roll up your sleeves and get to work, you can feel confident doing that because you have the science behind you. And and how long has I'm gonna this is a leading question. How long have we known that there's gonna be a problem? And we know that there were studies done a long time ago, there were speeches made, and then there were changes in attitudes to people that learn those things. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yes. I mean, this is one of the really painful truths of the climate crisis is that we've had the science in place for a really long time. And it's been not just, you know, not 
clear scientifically because there has been, of course, evolution of the science that's been very important to have the certainty that we do now, but active disinformation and misinformation campaigns um, by major fossil fuel companies and others. And that's really set us back by decades. And that is just so infuriating and heartbreaking because those are decades we cannot get back. They make our job a lot tougher now. And our, there's just so much more that needs to happen so quickly that could have been a lot simpler and cheaper and easier to do gradually. And we just don't have that time anymore. What has made the difference now that people are becoming aware? You know, I mean... The funny thing is, if you look at the data, so the, the best data on this for the U.S. comes from the Yale Center for Climate Communication, and they've done more than 20 years of really robust surveys of the American public, and the, including something called climate change in the American mind, where they look at different demographic groups, of which there are six, and look at how people relate to climate change. And a couple things are true at the same time. One is that uh, it's a near historic peak in the number of Americans who are concerned or alarmed about climate change. That's the majority of Americans, somewhere around two thirds to almost three quarters. So it's a really big number. One problem is that the very small group, less than 10%, who are called dismissives, who deny or aren't aware, don't actively sort of deny that there is a climate problem, that the earth is warming because humans are burning fossil fuels, and that we should, can and should do something about it to stop it, that group is really loud. And some of them are in Congress and some of them are in really powerful political and in positions in industry. And they have a huge amount of influence over the public debate. So that, that's been slowing things down. But I think what's been building momentum is social movements is one thing, uh, um, NGOs, so non, you know, um, civil society groups um, who are organizing and building grassroots power to people in local communities. There's a wonderful group called We Are Talking About It over in Healdsburg that started with a couple of friends and, you know, they table at the farmer's market and get people involved in their community. They're going oh, to. Oh, great. I love those people. They're that's, really awesome. That's April. Um, April Nall is part of that group. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Friend of the pod. Oh, great. Re recent guest oh, okay. you know the the last year of our show and, and before but we really like focused a lot of you know not every episode but we had some really great guests who were talking about things that were happening within the wine industry um with climate in mind and climate crisis in mind um and and i think the important piece of your work and you know a lot of the stuff that I see on social media is sort of addressing um the existential dread piece of it and that like we can have all the reusable wine bottles that don't weigh very much that we could possibly have and um you know all drive hybrids and electric cars um but that doesn't change the fact like the big corporate burning of fossil fuels that um are this piece of it that yeah you know, it seems so uh daunting and unsurmountable um but a lot of what you do is sort of working through those feelings <laughs> that so many people have um that you know there isn't that we can fix it piece of your of your uh haiku um so we talk a little bit about that sort of just a the psychological piece of it, um, but how 
effective these little changes that we can all make on a daily basis really can be. Yeah, I think that's so important. That's a, that was a big question. Sorry, there's a lot, there's a lot there. <laughs> we can we can go there. That's okay. I think it's great. So what I've come to is to focus on linking facts, feelings, and action. And I really think we need all three. So the facts are in that haiku. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's all the world's governments have endorsed that, by the way. Um, the facts are there. But the facts don't speak for themselves. They don't automatically translate into policy and behavior change. And to do that, we do need to address the feelings. And you mentioned existential dread, which is a very common and honestly normal and healthy response to the scope of the crisis. I mean, if you're evacuating your family home, it is real. I mean, and I think there are thankfully getting more and more resources to deal with that and to acknowledge that and make space for that. Um, and I've found that the best way out or really the only way out is through that you have to go in what I call these five steps of radical climate acceptance, go from ignorance, not knowing about the problem, avoidance, sticking our heads in the sand. And that isn't just, you know, actively dismissing or denying the reality of climate change, but just not incorporating it in our everyday lives. Many people have a wake up moment and go straight to doom, which is the third step. And that's often a late night Google rabbit hole of darkness. Maybe we've all been there. I Start certainly digging have. the hole in the backyard for the for the shelter. <laughs> the yeah. bunkers. Yeah. yeah. The, prepping, the prepping begins. Yeah. yeah. Stockpiling beans. Yeah. We're going to have uh, Steve Sando from Rancho Gordo on sometime this Ooh, month. Ooh, <laughs> love Rancho Gordo. I nice, mean, nicely done, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yes to more beans, climate-friendly protein, all about it. But, you know, the, d digging the bunker in the backyard and, and preparing to get through emergencies and help our neighbors and help each other. Very good idea. But, yeah, digging the hole in the backyard, probably a sign of doom. <laughs> so to get beyond that. That's not the end. And to get through that, you have to go through all the climate feels. And that's the fourth stage, which is anger at the injustice that this is happening. I mean, there's so many innocent people, young people, poor people, people in marginal communities around the world who've done so little, if anything, to cause the problem and are suffering the most. So anger is very natural. Grief at losing things that we love and care about. And there are things that have been lost or will be lost. Um, doom and and dread are certainly a part of it other feelings include courage community being energized by the scope of the work that needs to be done and ultimately what those feelings can be used for is to help us find our purpose in creating meaning through doing climate work and i really believe that doing what is needed for the climate can be an incredible pathway to finding meaning to building community to feeling really useful in the world to be of service to the people in places that we care about and to make our lives matter. And we just happen to be the most important people who have ever lived because we are this last generation, these last few years of our carbon budget. It's the amount of fossil fuels basically that we can burn and without causing catastrophic climate change. And we just have a few years left of that. So we are the ones who have to make radical changes happen. And as you said, that can start and I really believe must start in our daily lives with our everyday choices. I mean, 2030, right? That's the line in the, that's the sand, line in the sand? Yes. And, and where that number comes from is that if 
globally, humanity has not succeeded at our critical goal, which is to cut our carbon pollution in half by 2030. Then there's basically no way to avoid warming more than 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial baseline. And that might sound kind of abstract, but that's a huge, huge shift. I mean, that would be something like the difference in average temperature between Napa and Fresno, to put it in grape terms. That's a really big difference. And we would we definitely feel that in our everyday lives, in the seasons, in the plants and animals that are able to make a living where we live, the crops that we're able to grow. So beyond that, things get really, really tough and really scary. How confident are you that we can achieve that? Well, we're not on track to do it now. And the, you know, the, the title of a UN report this year was the closing window. So that was the words from a February 2022 report from the United Nations Climate Panel that we have a rapidly closing window to secure a livable future for humanity. So it, really, it's on the line. It is possible, but every month that goes by that we're not engaging, that we're not doing something, it becomes less possible. So it's it's really now or never. And I mean, even, I, I guess I worry about this a lot because we, we're really clearly, I mean, right now the world is headed for something like, uh, well, yeah, more close to three degrees of global warming. And that's really scary. Um, but the more we get away from that, the better life will be. And even if we don't make these really, really critical and important targets, getting on track, doing what's needed now, changing the curve, leaving fossil fuels in the ground, getting onto clean energy, doing things that make us healthier and happier along the way is just the right thing to do and will give us so many more options. What do you... You must be so you must get so frustrated. I get frustrated because some of the numbers that we've talked about, you've heard these things for 20 years. And what 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 a lot of people don't understand is why people in power don't affect change. And and is it that you just have these select individuals that are making tons of money? Um, and they have lobbyists and they're able to change laws or not change laws um, and um, and guide the agenda because you know that we have intelligent people, caring people that are actually in positions of power. And so why is it not possible to somehow create this global awareness of, hey, we need to change things and, and even sort of like a benevolent dictator, someone just saying, OK, you know what? Enough is enough. Like these things need to get done. Um, I, I just and and then I wonder these people that are profiting from fossil fuels. What is their plan um, ultimately? Like, yeah. do they do they not have family? Are they do they do they know of some alien invasion coming up and they have a seat on the ship that's taking off to Mars? Or yeah. it just common sense. There's no thread of common sense in any of the arguments. And so it's really frustrating. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that. And so they get to the point of just sort of throwing their hands up. And if it's not going to affect me tomorrow, and there's always other things going on in your life, people are busy. And so then it just sort of kicks the can down the road another day, another day. Yeah. But it's almost like we need some, some, some leader to just come out and say, okay, guys, 
I'm picking up the ball. I'm carrying it. You guys are all coming with me. It's going to be a better planet. We just need to make it happen. Yeah. Um, but w- who is that person and why haven't they shown up? And, and, and if they're not going to show up, then I cannot use plastic in my house and I can, um, you know, drive an electric car, but it just doesn't seem like it's moving the needle enough, um, to actually make a difference. So I just don't, it's so incomprehensible sometimes that the science has been out there for so long, but there's no one really, it doesn't feel to us as normal people that have nine to five jobs and watch television at night that there's anyone really directing the agenda. It's based on us actually having to find a community and then get involved in that community. But I just, I, I just, I don't know if it's laziness on my part, but I just wish that there was someone besides Greta Thunberg or someone that was out there inspiring people um, to do something. And 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 you know what? Getting child traffickers arrested by their pizza boxes. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, maybe we're going to have to make less money this year, honey, because we're going to have to volunteer some time um, mm, to yeah. do something. I mean, there's... Uh, so what is it... Does it... I want to know from your perspective, like, what do you think these people are thinking? Um, And and that involves people in Congress um, that what that what is the end game? Yeah, well, thank you for that. I share your frustration and I definitely see many examples of it. What the research says is that politicians don't feel enough support from their constituents to take bolder climate action. The ones that are concerned and alarmed, like the majority of Americans, hear a lot from lobbyists that want to keep the status quo, and they do not hear a lot from their everyday constituents. And they are afraid of losing their job if they move too quickly and too boldly. Now, that's not to excuse them. I think people in power have a huge responsibility that they've largely been failing. I mean, I agree with you that we don't have a lot of powerful climate leaders, especially in politics at the highest levels, who are doing what's necessary. That said, I think there have been huge wins in the U.S. And I mean, it's an interesting position for me because Sweden just had an election in September 2022. We now have a um, right-wing government in power who has set kind of given up on our climate goals and publicly said, I mean, we have a climate law that says, for example, we'll have uh, net zero emissions by 2045. And the current environment minister has kind of shrugged and said, well, if we don't meet it, we don't meet it. It's like, wait a minute, this is the law. Your job is to keep the promises that you've made, which have been put into law. And you're a lawmaker who's responsible for delivering this. So it's very concerning there. But in the U.S., We have the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, which is the biggest climate legislation ever passed. It is on track to reduce emissions about 40 percent by 2030. We need to do more. It's not enough, but it's a huge step in the right direction. So actually, now I think in the U.S. there's huge opportunities. There's a lot of incentives and a lot of the work that needs to be done is helping communities to access those incentives, to know what they are and how to put them into practice. And I think, you know, to your question of, how do fossil fuel execs sleep at night? Um, I honestly don't know. Xanax and Ambien? <laughs> Seriously. I'm- Maybe wine. Oh my gosh, what if you're, you know, unknowingly helping to support these? No. Um, I asked that question. <laughs> I asked that question to Ben Franta, who studies climate denial. And 
what he said is that the research with, for example, cigarette executives showed that they have a narrative in their mind that they're the good guys. So there there aren't many people out there who are like, you know what? I'm just a jerk. I don't care about people. I don't care about my kids and grandkids or anybody else's. I'm just in it to make as much money as possible. Those people must exist. But really, they're not the, no. you know, they're not the rule. They'd be the exception. And in the case of cigarettes, the people were saying, so the line from the cigarette company was, cigarettes do not, smoking cigarettes does not cause cancer. And the execs were able to believe that, that that was true because of how they had defined those words. For example, it's not true that everyone who smokes cigarettes will get cancer. It's not true that everyone who has cancer has it because they smoke cigarettes. And they had a, a narrative in their head that meant that what they were saying was then true and acceptable. And I, I think what's happening with the fossil execs who are still you know, there's less overt denial. Like I was looking back, the first study that I was a part of uh, when I was a grad student at Stanford was published in 2004. And it was carried in the New York Times, reprinted there. And it's really stunning to see how media even, you know, not that long ago, well, <laughs> we're all getting older, but you know, 2004 was representing climate that it was, here's this team of 17 scientists from top universities publishing in this high-ranked peer-reviewed journal. It's been extensively you know, tested, and um, this is as close to the truth as we can get it, and here's what it looks like for a climate change California. And then you know, presented as equal to that was this hack from an um, industry think tank basically saying, oh, this is just alarmism trying to scare people. And those two things were presented as if they had equal weight. So that has at least shifted. You don't read that in the New York Times or other you know, major media anymore, but there's still, yeah, so far to go. And I guess to your question of why, who, where, where's the climate messiah going to come from? Eat I mean, I... Fascist. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> I mean, the problem is we... The, I think we need democracy to solve climate in a way that makes a world that I want to live in. And that means we have five climate leaders sitting around this table who have different abilities, but all of which are needed to actually engage and start making a difference. I don't, I truly don't believe in this kind of top down like leadership. I mean, I, I think the moment for that has passed. It could have been possible, but personally, I don't see it being the way forward. And I, I really believe in the more bottom up, um, which, you know, in some ways is a lot harder and, and demands a lot more of us, but also is a lot more meaningful and there's a lot more we can do. Kimberly, um, today in the New Do York Times, Dr. Kimberly, uh, Dr. Uh, in, today in the New York Times, in the client forward, climate forward section, uh, your climate actions in 2023. Uh, so this is addressing the U.S. And our conversation has been basically talking about the U.S. Uh, what impact has uh, is is Beijing and uh, Mumbai and Moscow having on the global uh, climate change scene? So to stop climate change, humans have to completely stop adding carbon pollution to the atmosphere. We have to get to zero. And that means we have to completely stop burning fossil fuels. So putting that in perspective makes us realize that every country is really important because all countries have to do that. 
it's been agreed, for example, in the Paris Agreement and the United Nations process, that rich developed countries who have already benefited a lot from fossil fuels and who have high emissions need to reduce first and fastest out of fairness, basically. But all countries are going to have to go to zero. Um, the U.S. has an especially important role historically because we're 5% of the global population and we're 25% of total climate pollution. Wow. Yeah. How, well, how's the other 75% broken up? So China, as you know, is a much bigger country than the U.S., uh, much, much larger, more than three or close to four times the population. They've caused about half as much climate pollution in total as the U.S. So per person is much lower. Really? I mean, when when the Olympics were there uh, and it was fogged up with, with smog and pollution, I mean, you could see it on television. It was crazy. They mounted fans in the mountains to blow it off. I mean, it was really silly, but I mean, I would think that they were even worse than we are. That was my concept. At the but I don't think all what you're talking about is not all just smog and pollution, right? It's 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 everything else in the world that we do. You know, it's how things are produced. It's the difference between recycling glass and right and, and reusing glass. Well, and I you know I see uh, news uh, showing rivers in uh, in the east that are just completely clogged with plastic. You know, soda yeah. bottles. That's right. it, and and milk bottles. That's yeah. So those those numbers, the twenty five percent of climate pollution coming from the U.S. and 12% total coming from China, that's that's climate pollution, largely from burning fossil fuels. But that's really closely correlated to all kinds of industrial pollution. And the reason that you pollution in general is so much more visible in China is that CO2 itself is invisible. The, the, the greenhouse gas that warms the climate from burning fossil fuels, we can't see it. And the U.S. in the 70s, I mean, we probably all remember, used to have much worse air quality than it does now. So regulation has been successful in decreasing the visible smog and particulates that, that you can see with your eyes. And you might remember, I mean, I remember looking from my parents' house who live, um, so we both grew up on a road a couple miles north of here with a view towards the south in San Francisco, and it used to be a lot browner on the horizon. And oh, it has gotten LA, climate yeah. inversion, you know? Uh-huh. So I think it, I mean... Definitely there are all countries need to get off of fossil fuels as fast and fairly as possible. Um, countries like China and India are no exception. But the difference is that in India, there are 400 million people without access to electricity. They don't have a refrigerator. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have a light for kids to study and read by at night. So there's still development that needs to happen there. And I think the U.S. and other rich countries have a responsibility to make sure that development is affordable and clean and not locking in more of the pollution that we went through and adding to the problem. Are we the number one then? In China is now the number one uh, climate polluter per year in terms of total volume. Again, per capita, they're smaller than the U.S. still. But China became the largest uh, about 15 years ago. So that's quite recent. The U.S. got a, a really big head start. Yeah. So pretty wild in the 70s, weren't we? Um, <laughs> Boomer. Yeah. Um, can we talk about food supply or yeah. diet? Yeah. Because um, I think that's one thing that people can sort of relate to um, yeah. in an everyday um, way. And what's what's the difference between me eating some beef and me eating some chicken and me eating some fish or me becoming a vegan? Well, and, 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 I, and also to that point is 
and then how much does how the the beef or the chicken or anything is raised is that you know if you say i'm not eating those products that are coming from forest being mowed down in brazil and it's grown regeneratively here in the united states and it's not trucked all over or flown all over the world is that making a difference i think michael pollan has a really good rule of thumb which is eat food not too much mostly plants so i mean that's a good guiding principle um, we know from research that it is much better for the climate to eat plants instead of animals. And that's actually true regardless of how either the plants or the animals are raised. Yeah. There's just such an enormous difference in things that grow from the ground and eat sunlight for food, basically, or use sunlight to make their own food, which is what plants do. <sighs> then things level up on the food chain like us who can't do that and have to eat the plants that are able to. So there's just a huge, you know, tenfold or more loss in energy every step you go up the food chain. So there, there was a study that showed we could feed more than 10 billion people with the food produced today if people just ate all the food that was produced and we didn't feed that food to animals and to our cars, basically, to turn into yeah. biofuel. So a largely plant-based diet is really the best for the climate, also for biodiversity, because animals use a lot of land and water. Now, that said, there are systems that make sense to have animals be a part of it. And grazing animals, for example, in lands that benefit from grazing and uh, doing that in a responsible way does make sense. No matter how you cut it, it's going to be a lot less meat consumption than the average American today. But what there's room for in a healthy and sustainable diet is about two servings of eggs, chicken, and fish per week. Uh, one serving of dairy per day, which is either about a glass of milk or a serving of cheese, which is only one ounce. It's the size of your thumb. I wish it were bigger because I love cheese. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of beef burgers per month. So it's a, it's a modest amount of meat, but for people who want to include meat in their diet, there is room to do that in a healthy way. And I, I mean, growing up here, I definitely believe in supporting local farmers, people who raise animals with good welfare and responsibly. That said, from a climate perspective, how the animals are raised doesn't make as big of a difference as, or how they're transported. Those are usually quite a small part of the total footprint. And I kind of want to um, talk about an attitude of lesser evils that goes on um, with with a lot of people in my family and people that I know where, you know, we don't want to drive a car that uses fossil fuels. So we're driving an electric car and then we find out that we're mining cobalt in Africa that's killing people. So then there's an argument against electric cars as it then it starts an argument there we want to use wind power but all of a sudden a, a couple birds a day fly into the turbine and then you have a group that um raises their voices and next thing you know it's why are Cole we doesn't kill hawks right right it's but this is always the thing is that there's no perfect thing um yeah. that there's um but it just always seems to be the lesser of the evils um but you get these groups that um, um, you know, stand up and raise their voice and then 
um, people get involved and next thing you know their voices end up being louder because they're passionate about that particular thing um, well so one thing I hear you saying is that a small group of passionate citizens can make a really big difference interesting point there true <laughs> true right but also I mean to your point um, let's just talk about what the high impact actions are. So, and, and I like to think of it in five different areas. It's not just what we do as consumers, but also as citizens, as role models, as professionals, and as investors. But starting with consumption, sort of our everyday life, how we spend our money and, and time. Um, the highest impact actions we can do there are to go flight, car, and meat free. And talk about flight because yeah. I didn't realize you know, everyone thinks that driving cars around is the worst thing that we're doing. Um, and then, you know, when I found out that flight was actually really bad, and then you look at the news from this past um, Christmas season and you see all the flights and all the, I mean. Revenge it, travel, right? People oh my God. Like busting out. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a worrisome trend. So if you fly, that is your biggest source of climate pollution. And that was definitely true for me. So I'm a former frequent flyer. In 2010, I moved from the US to Sweden. And that year I took 15 round trip flights, which is a lot. Between the US and Sweden? No, not or no. just in general? Okay. Yes, it was, I think, two that year between the US and Sweden. Um, but others, I went to Disneyland with a friend. I went to a wedding on the East Coast. I went to a concert in Germany when I moved to Sweden. So it was just a really normal thing for me personally to you know, yeah, but to buy a concert ticket to my favorite band, which was playing, you know, a thousand miles away or whatever. Which is and what band? Who's the band? That was Arcade Fire. Thank you. Before they won the Grammy, you know, I was like, really? And then were, yeah. <laughs> concert was amazing. Um, but, you know, I should have waited till they came to me or because flying is just so carbon intensive. I mean, you can blow. So what we need to be aiming for to stabilize the climate is a footprint per person of about 2.5 tons per year and a single flight can blow that so we really 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 and unfortunately there aren't technical solutions to continuing to fly the way we do in a climate friendly way an electric car is substantially better than a gas-powered car um in and it's getting better as the grid gets cleaner so as more electricity comes from clean sources instead of fossil fuels. But right now in Sweden, for example, it's about 65% better the life cycle impact of driving an electric car than a fossil car. And there are impacts for mining and it, it's not a completely free lunch, but definitely from a climate perspective, it's it's the way to go. Have you ever thought about creating some sort of scorecard? Because people love to keep score. So when you just said 2.5, what would tell me the, the, the what, what it would be? If, to, yeah, so our, our carbon budget per yeah. person, we should be aiming for between around two, 2.5 tons per person per year. Right. That's our goal. So if you had a, a yeah. an app or a chart on my refrigerator where I could make little, every time how I did something, how, like, how much carbon did you bring right. today? And, yeah. and give people a goal to sort of shoot for, you know, let's try and stay under that number. Or something that they, or, some, or at least something that they can understand how yeah. they're using it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there are some good resources out there. I'll name a few. And then I am working on one, which I can talk more about. Um, so the average American today is around 15 tons per person per year. Oh, so yeah, <laughs> oops, <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. And the average, I focus a lot on this global top 10%, which is 
in the U.S., you just have to make about $35,000 a year or more. So certainly most people who can afford to live in the Sonoma Valley are in that group. Um, and we collectively, this top 10% that I'm also a part of, cause half of the global climate pollution. So that's why individual action is so important, along with government and industry action, because we ha are holding the key to actually a really globally significant amount of climate pollution. If you get up to the top 1%, which is 109 US dollars per uh, sorry, 109,000 US dollars per year in income, that makes you globally in the top 1%. And that group is about 50 times over there or 25 times, excuse me, about 50 tons a year, 25 times over their budget. So, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in eliminating unnecessary flying, for example, in driving less, those are the things that actually add up the most because especially as income goes up, so climate pollution goes up with income. Basically what people do with income is turn it into travel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's a large part of and where- stuff. Travel and stuff. Yeah. But travel actually has a way bigger footprint than stuff. And yeah. especially for this top 10 and this particularly top 1%, about 60% of the top 1%'s climate pollution is from travel. From flying, forty percent from flying, twenty percent from driving. So any great. flight or driving you can cut is a big climate action. Yeah. Well, and a great argument for VR. I mean, if you can get people with Oculus on their heads and they can go around the world, um, yeah, get off the plane. Totally, and an argument for building routes where trains. you are for trains. Yeah for slower travel, for active travel, for taking, you know, maybe we could normalize having one huge lifetime vacation that takes a year, then you get to explore the world rather than many short, frequent, long distance flights. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to do this. Yeah. How do you track your um, usage, these tons? Yeah. I mean, how do you track them daily? What do the, what am I doing that right. causes it? I need a scorecard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. If you want a scorecard, I recommend the Cool Climate Calculator, which is from UC Berkeley. It's a carbon calculator, of which there are many, but it's the one that's been through peer review is the most academically robust. I'm sitting here thinking we're going to Copenhagen this summer for oh. vacation, uh -huh. and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we're thinking we're gonna, we're gonna well we'll ride bikes and we'll, we're gonna go see do you know what the Copen Hill is oh yeah I've hiked it yeah because okay. that, that's about 45 minutes from where I live now oh okay yeah. okay well we were gonna come over to Sweden yeah and now I'm thinking like god what is our carbon input to go our footprint to go to um Copenhagen for yeah so look, can I ask about offsets then and and you say we have a 15 ton per person is there the possibility of doing things that reduce the total carbon and and bring it's a, is it a, it's a net two and a half tons per year or a total two and a half tons like per year planting a tree like if you and so you like <laughs> yeah if you're flying to Copenhagen for you know flying to Europe for your summer vacation is there a way of offsetting that carbon impact some other way either financially or physically planting trees, whatever, or is that just sort of like uh, makes you feel like you're doing something but actually doesn't That's do anything? fucked up corporate game. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it is, I've seen that game being played before. And, um, and, yeah, it's... But I mean, you know, the offsets yeah. things, you know, there's the carbon offset on like the, on the macro scale, but on the, you know, if you had a 
prime rib for Christmas. Can you, you know, <laughs> say have four a living, Hail Marys a living, and be climate a living Christmas tree? Right? Is okay. that? I mean, yep, I hear you. Are those are those trade offs? Is that a, is that a fallacy? Is that is that a, a red herring, or is there is there reality there? Unfortunately, offsets do not work. There are trade-offs we can make, and the way that I think about it, and we can talk more about why offsets don't work. I wrote, I write a monthly publication called We Can Fix It, and a couple months ago, the issue was called Climate Neutral or Carbon Neutral is a Bad Goal, and there I go into the evidence on why offsets have not worked historically and why I don't think they're a productive way to go forward. Um, what I have personally done and what I advocate doing is reduce our own footprint, my own footprint, as much as possible. So in my case, I went from taking those 15 flights a year to now one flight a year. And I haven't been able to or willing to give up this one flight that's between Sweden, where I live and work, and Sonoma, where my family is. Um, and that's a dilemma I created for myself by moving halfway around the world in 2010 when I really wasn't thinking about the carbon and climate constraints that we face in the same way I am now. So it, Kim in 2023 would not move to Sweden because I'm locking myself into this these love miles, they're called, which are the hardest ones to cut. <laughs> um, but that said, I have reduced my flying more than 90%. I have gone car-free in Sweden. I'm, I'm not in California or in Sonoma where we live. It's it's quite you difficult. Spend your entire vacation here walking back up the hill. Walking up and down the hill, right. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason I might buy an e-bike. Oh, yeah, that's a great option. Get up and down the hill. Yeah. That would be great. And the research shows, I mean, they when they substitute car trips, which if you own them, they do, that the shared e-bikes, unfortunately, have not been successful in displacing car trips, but the own e-bikes do. And that's awesome. And you're outside and you're getting exercise. And yeah, it's a big win. And we live somewhere where you can ride your bike most of the year. Yeah, right. So bottom line, I think of it this way. Look at your footprint to get a sense of, is my footprint above the average for my country? If no, it's not. It might be tough for you to cut much more because then you're kind of a lot of your footprint is coming from infrastructure that you don't have direct control over. But if you're two or three or five or 10 times above the average for your country, you have a lot of room to make personal changes that can make a big difference. When you've done that, go as far as you can and be progressive about it. Set goals. I mean, the way I started flying less was I said, okay, I'm going to follow the example of my friend Charlie. I'm going to stop flying within Europe. That's something I can do. Um, and that led to a really big decrease in my flying overall. It was nice for me to have a simple rule. Once you've reduced as much as you can, put your in your own footprint and consumption, put your climate energy into those other four roles as a citizen. So as a citizen, as a role model, uh, as an investor and as a professional. And that's where you can, for example, take your money out of, I used to bank here at Bank of America. They're one of the major funders of expanding fossil drilling and infrastructure, even though we have no more time and space in the carbon budget to do that. So I took my money out of Bank of America. I put it in Redwood Credit Union, which is a local, the whole credit union idea is these local community-based nonprofits that reinvest in the community and do not support fossil expansion. So spend your time doing that instead. Set up a monthly recurring donation to support groups that are working for climate action professionally, the kind of work you're doing, getting the word out, uh, encouraging the wine industry to make the changes that are needed. You know, that's where you can direct a lot of that energy and, I, and don't worry about the offsets. Mm. Um, just because I'm not on that plane doesn't mean that plane's not flying though, right? So 
and I, I'm not well, I don't know. You're a businessman, right? There. Don't you sell wine? <laughs> yes. So uh, do you believe in supply and demand? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's the same with that okay. plane. It uh, really does matter. Right. I mean, the it that specific particular plane might not be canceled because you didn't buy a ticket on it. But uh, if it flies anyway and, and you don't buy a ticket, you're certainly not responsible for those emissions. And the airline industry is one of the most responsive to demand. They change schedules and flights all the time. Right. So changes in demand do decrease mm. uh, the flights. Cool. What um, countries in the world do you see having the best success in changing mm. attitudes besides having women in power i imagine um it's probably a big factor yeah um and what and why so move to think? new zealand <clears throat> right to sail there though um cool okay i want to come there's your year vacation too <laughs> right that sounds awesome oh no my gosh no more love miles <laughs> <laughs> Stock the hole with wine and take out. That sounds amazing. Your performance what an gets better the more you drink. Right. And I know we're it's 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 not apples to apples because we're a larger um, um, country. Yeah. That, um, with our infrastructure and how systems are set in place already. Um, but what countries are doing well and what is it they're doing? Yeah, well, there's a range. I mean, if we look, and you're absolutely right, the research shows that electing women is a very effective climate action, that yeah. uh, it's statistically significantly related to reducing carbon pollution. So uh, we haven't talked too much about the citizen actions yet. Those are super important. The most important there that we can do as individuals is to vote. Um, there's groups like the League of Conservation Voters and others that assess politicians and give them a climate score and studies have shown that voting for politicians with a strong climate score also reduces pollution yeah. so that that's a really big one and there's a number of initiatives now i just heard about one called the down ballot climate initiative i think i have that name right so supporting local races uh, around the country of the people who are you know deciding where are the bike lanes going to go are we going to have you know replace parking with bike infrastructure are we going to do these kind of everyday uh, climate action that actually makes a big difference for somebody deciding hey i'm going to leave the car at home and take the e-bike into work so there are a lot of places we can engage but sorry i i feel like I i'm just question. wondering what other what other countries oh, yeah. that are doing much better mm. in reversing Who carbon footprint and and is there any, is there anybody right. doing much better well in like california i think that california probably does a better job than a lot of the other states um, and I know we That's probably true. catch a lot of shit for it, um, yeah. but I, but I've noticed or now we that I just feel like we're doing better. Well, California's better. Yeah. California's better. We're better, and and but I've noticed in my fifty years on this planet that we make changes here in California. Other people make fun of us, and then just wait ten years, and then they are all doing those things that they were making fun of us um, yeah. for doing. Um, yeah, and we need those leaders. So there are a handful of countries. It's around twenty countries, roughly who do have emissions going in the right directions down towards zero. They're all going too slowly. They all need to speed up. But there are countries that are doing it. The U.S. is one of them, actually. So emissions are now declining in the U.S. So it's mostly wealthy Western countries. It's uh, the U.S., Sweden is another, uh, much of Northern Europe. Uh, I think New Zealand is also declining, if I have that right. Um there it feels like it's more of a demographic transition that sort of regulations come into place basically to start chipping away at the pollution whereas rapidly growing and developing countries are still building infrastructure and unfortunately too much of it still fossil based where yeah. their pollution's going up 
A real bright spot is cities because there are more than 300 cities that have emissions going down. And there's a network that was originally called C40 Cities, which was meant to be 40 cities who are taking climate action uh, that now has more than 300 who are actually succeeding at reducing emissions. So I think city climate action is really, really important. And as you mentioned, California has long been an environmental leader. Um, vehicle standards, for example, have been really important in California in pushing the whole market because so many people live here. It's burdensome for auto manufacturers to make different kinds of cars. They just end up making cleaner cars that they can sell in California and the rest of the country benefits from that. Yeah. I just ran myself through the cool uh, climate calculator. Okay. I, I am oh. a climate villain. Uh-oh. Uh, 12.4 <laughs> tons of CO2. Okay. For me. Okay. But you're also below average. That's true. Um, okay. And I really try. Yeah. Um, Don't justify him. <laughs> well, no. no I mean, I do. I appreciate I have my yeah. boomer guilt, but I do try. We yeah. try. Right. You know, I mean, right. that's it. Yeah. Well, yeah, so you are below the U.S. average, although you might, I don't know off the top of my head what the California average is. You might be a little bit above that. I, I think the... I'm from Chicago, so... Okay, okay. <laughs> you, bring, you bring it with you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what Make did it adjustment. say? Unfortunately. Don't you get a, a graph that says what proportion of the total comes from each activity? Did you see wh where's your highest image? Uh, I didn't go past that. I could, I, okay. I can go show me what I'm doing. Well, right. you know, um, oh, yeah. since your property was built after the year 2000, it's energy consumption is 15 to 30% less than average. Mm. Okay. I, I have lowered oh. my electric bills 50% wow. from two years ago. Wow. My water 50% from two years. ago. Wow. That's a lot. And on a really short time. So what did you do to achieve that? turn things off, uh -huh. pee a bunch of times before I flush. Um, I, I don't have a yard, so I, you know, it's all mulch. Um, so I don't water my yard. Um, okay. You know, I do think about it. I mean, we, we recycle religiously. We compost. We um, don't buy bottled water anymore and single-use plastics. Yeah. I use a, I don't go to the grocery store. I see people at the grocery store, uh, at the uh, produce, just tearing off 10 or 12 plastic bags that are one-use bags. That's it. Yeah. And I use paper bags to do that. You know, they call them mushroom bags, but they're, you know, I just go get them. And I, I put everything in that. I really do try. Our family yeah. tries. Yeah. And my son uh, at 33 blames me. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, as a boomer for everything that has gone on. Wow. We have two cars, you know, okay. one is a 2000, one is a 2015. So one is more efficient and cleaner than the other. Right. Um, but my wife won't give her up, give her a car up. So it's not going to happen. Okay. But all kinds of things I, I'm trying to do. I yeah, don't know I where that. to improve myself other than not driving. I don't, I haven't flown in a couple of years, but my wife okay. does international business. So she's in Europe a couple of times a year. So right. she, her flight is much worse than mine. Right. So. Well, it does sound like you're doing a lot. And I think, I mean, in terms of uh, footprint, re reducing your own consumption, I mean, you've already hit on the big ones, which would be reduce the driving as much as you can. I mean, maybe you keep the two cars you have, but if an e-bike might be an option, you try to replace the shorter trips. The most car climate pollution comes from long trips. So that that's both for driving and for flying. It's it's easier to replace the shorter trips with, for example, you know, if you were going to drive a mile or two, maybe that's a really 
easy e-bike trip. And that's great. Every time you can leave the car at home is super. But the biggest pollution comes from if you're doing a long distance trip to, you know, a destination across the country or many hours away. Um, and the same with flying. So something, for example, your wife could look into would, would be, is it an option to stay longer and make one trip combining all of those instead of two? That'd be a way to cut her climate pollution in half from flying. No. I need Brian's scorecard. Oh, yeah. I need to figure out how to do it. But, John, I think what's what's key is that you have awareness. So, like, a lot of people just aren't even aware or care. Um, they wouldn't care what their score was. But it seems like you're making, you're thinking about it on a daily basis. And I, I have a 14-year-old daughter. And so what I love about these kids coming up is they're vigilant. And they're they're willing to change their lives um, significantly to make positive changes. Whereas I'm <laughs> older and, and like have routines. Um, mm. But I love this new generation coming up, these kids, because they see a goal and they want to go for it and they're willing to make changes um, that, that I think a lot of other people aren't. Well, the research shows that daughters are really effective at changing their dad's concern about climate specifically. And I think that's really important because I also think it's really energizing and incredible to see young people so engaged. Nonetheless, given that we have, you know, it's now 2023, seven years, the carbon clock is ticking. We can't make it their responsibility to cut carbon in half in the next seven years, right? Those of us who have the possibility and power to do that are the ones who need to get those changes going inspired by and in collaboration with young people. Right. But it's not going to work to be like, great, they're going to fix it. Or, you know, right. oh, once the young people rule the world, everything will be fine. It's like, yeah. no, they, they're inheriting the world we're creating right now. Yeah. I mean, my son has definitely given me the he considers anyone, whether we we always joke about the boomers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So he considers my generation has ruined it also. And I try to explain to him it's been generations for, you know, before, but his school, they talk about it. And I think that it sounds like the part of the problem is that nobody's talked about it for years. So how important is it that schools start teaching climate education, um, to you really important i mean this is that one of those five high impact roles that we can have for climate action as a role model and that's how we talk about climate to others and i would put education under that category as well um i mean that said i recently found a paper digging through old stuff in my parents house i wrote a paper in 1990 so i was 12 years old where i said cutting down the amazon rainforest to grow beef is releasing carbon dioxide and causing climate change as is burning fossil fuels in the next century this will be a problem because temperatures will, will rise there will be more droughts uh, impacts on crops health da, da, da. i was 12 and my sources were the sonoma valley public library bless them huge resource and the magazines that came to my parents house so i cited good housekeeping magazine as one of my sources in this paper so Would you, i don't think you get away with that anymore. I, now yeah it's, it's not in the book i have about 700 sources in the book good housekeeping None is not one of them, of them. no <laughs> but you know these these really available resources and there was no internet i wasn't googling anything but the the information has been out there a long time and it's super important that it's part of everyday conversations as part of education um but you know the reason it's important is because 
basically behavior is there's a trigger, a thought, an action, and a consequence. And the trigger could be, okay, now we're together in this context, we're having a conversation about climate in this podcast, or you're at a party with a friend or discussing with your kids. The thought is, you know, about responsibility or about what we can do. And then the action is triggered by the thought and that's affected by how we talk about it. So it, you know, it's really important to have the conversations to make the space for conversations. I mean, I think it sounds very painful to be blamed by your children for what they feel is a really difficult future. He blames everything on me. Yeah, <laughs> but that's really tough, right? I mean, yeah. what what are those conversations like? Oh, I mean, I mean, usually they're pretty short-winded conversations. They haven't gotten. Yeah. I mean, he's a fifteen-year-old boy. He's okay. Not a right. Know. They'd have to. He'd have to talk more to have a, a full right. conversation. I mean, he 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 likes to throw things out there and move on and go, you know, shoot baskets or okay. play his video game. Okay. Um. So he's not quite there yet, but okay. he's getting better. I mean, he's. Yeah. It, it's the other thing is the, um how he is around us and compared to, you know, all the things that we hear from his teachers and whatnot. Like uh -huh. there's much more thoughtful and processed things for school. Yeah. Um, the papers that he writes, stuff like that. Right. But conversations right. with us is about controlling the narrative. Yeah. Well, that's tough. I, I can certainly understand with a teenager, but I wonder what would happen if you asked, well, you know, what would you like us to do about it? I mean, I wonder what his yeah. um, what is it that specifically is bothering him? Because obviously, the entire state know, of the world. That, I yeah. will ask him that. Yeah, and I wonder if there is an activity that you could do together that would be a creek cleanup in Sonoma or a um, getting e-bikes into the hands of people. Who well, can I, I mean, you know, on that note, I mean, we we do have those conversations, and yeah. you know, we do community pickups. We pick up buzz balls off of Grove Street. So <laughs> there, guys. That's a reference to a recent episode. Right. Um, but Which no, I mean, we do have those. On the side of the road. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. It also is disgusting malt liquor. 15% alcohol <laughs> drink. malt liquor. Wow. Drink. That's the name of a drink, buzz ball? Yeah. Okay. They come in, they're literally like plastic balls that you buy at the convenience store. Oh, wow. And you like and get a buzz off. peel the top off of them. And That's drink okay. them, and then obviously, uh, apparently, throw them out the window on Grove Street, uh, in, front of, wow. in front of Bart's house, or okay. maybe up the hill from Bart's house, and they roll down and flow Where's down in the, the rainstorms. Oh, America! What will you invent next? Look at this technological solution to drink how to get drunk as fast as possible. Drink one in cans oh. instead. Come on, it's recyclable. Right. We've come full circle. There's only there's, there's only some slight self interest in saying that. <laughs> Well, let's talk about things we can do. What are yeah. you think? What do you think are the what's the low hanging fruit? What's the easiest things for people to change their everyday lives? Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about them. I mean, many people start by what we've talked a lot about here is the consumption roles, and that's uh, every flight and drive and meat consumption that you can reduce makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, then there's also the political role, so voting super important, supporting groups with your time and money that are working for climate action, uh, electing women, which we talked about at the professional level. We haven't talked too much about that, but there's yeah. a huge role that the wine industry can play and is playing. And many are coming together to do that. I mean, most of us spend the majority of our days at work and we don't need everybody to quit their job and run out and become a climate activist. What we need is for everybody to make their job a climate job and to look, 
to make happen basically the things that are within your power to do at work. There's a great guide from Project Drawdown called Climate Solutions at Work that is a two-page checklist for basically if you're in human resources or you're in procurement or you're in these different roles, what is it that you can do? And I've written a lot about what the wine industry, both consumers and producers can be doing, uh, which is a huge amount. Can we can we talk more about that specific, just, you know, yeah. A, from the consumer side, but B, um, you know, we've talked about it a lot in, you know, previous episodes, but maybe sort of just like hit the, the bullet points again for people who, you know, are coming to this as this, you know, didn't catch those episodes or yeah. just to sort of reiterate and expand on, you know, we've talked a little bit about bottles. We've talked a little bit about, um, you know, some things here and there, recycling and, you know, reusing lighter bottles, things like that. Yeah, but less plastic. Less plastic. You know, figure but there's, out ways to have less plastic. You know, if, if the the quick hits. Sure. Um, so, you know, across the wine industry, both from the consumer and the production side. Right. So the packaging conversation is important for producers that ends up being about a third roughly of the carbon footprint. So there's everything from what happens in the vineyard to, you know, being efficient, minimal soil disturbance, reducing the inputs as much as possible, um, efficiency in the winery in terms of water and energy. Uh, the transport is really a big one. So I've been talking to a lot of people about how they're approaching that creatively. Some of it is options for local Refills, for example, so reusable bottles rather than recyclable. Um, because glass is energy intensive to move around. It's heavy, right? And to make it, you have to melt sand to 3,000 degrees. That takes a lot of energy. So reusing glass would be great if you're sticking with glass. Lighter packaging in general because that's less weight to transport and that correlates with emissions. Those are a couple things from the wine industry. And I think there's really important work happening by groups like International Wineries for Climate Action right. that have taking leadership are being really transparent about their numbers, making it easier for others to follow, <clears throat> excuse me, making it easier for others to follow suit. And, you know, at the, where I think we met at the Snappa Thrives event mm -hmm. recently this past summer, um, there were some great talks that where people have crunched all the numbers and there's a pretty consistent pattern. So if you don't have, you know, if you're a small winery, for example, and you don't have the resources to do a big inventory, you can rely on, okay, these are going to be the high impact actions because this is what others have done. And a big thing there is that it's also about the supply chain, right? It's about setting standards, for example, and making agreements and having the industry as a whole move in a big direction. Because one big learning from that, session for me was that, you know, uh, Molly from Spotswood was sharing that about 20% of their total emissions come from essentially on farm or on winery production mm -hmm. that they can control directly. Right. And about 80% come from their supply chain, things that they purchase. So that's their packaging, that's transport. So a lot of that is, you know, under, they can influence. And then a lot of it is having those conversations with partners and suppliers and industry organizations and moving in the right direction together. And and what about farming? Yeah, I mean, is is you know, I, we've we've had I've had people say to me, you know, talk about organics, and they say, well, the problem with organics is that you need more passes with a tractor. Um, uh, you know, that's a, an aesthetic thing. I mean, Sam, you you should be talking about this more than me, but I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is organic or regenerative? farming in the wine industry specifically, you know, is it impactful? Um, I mean, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're protecting the planet. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so I've been uh, working on regenerative viticulture and supervised a, a master's thesis at Harvard, actually, um, Jessica Villat. So the thesis is online and we're working on a publication from it now. What she did was look at all the studies that have been done in wine growing. And I mean, when we talk about regenerative, there are many different understandings of that word. But one really important one is we need to be increasing carbon in the soil. That's one thing that we're regenerating. So instead of releasing carbon from the soil to the atmosphere where it's a pollutant, we're capturing more of it from the atmosphere. We're using the magic of plants who take carbon from the atmosphere and sequester it in their roots and, and leaves and building that cycle so that the carbon is going up in the soil where it does lots of wonderful things for soil structure and function and is a good thing instead of a problem in the air. So basically what we found from that study was that there were nine practices that have been understood as regenerative. All of them did increase carbon compared with a standard industrial practice. There actually was no statistically significant difference between any of the nine practices. So basically all of them were good and did something. Um, there haven't been enough studies with enough statistical power to say this is absolutely the best or this is the worst or but you know things like um incorporating animals in the vineyard uh using cover crops um those did make a difference and increase carbon and i think farmers people who are growing grapes have this experience of what works to improve their soil basically um but it would be really nice to have more solid numbers and and priorities because we i mean the one important aspect of it is we would like to know, you know, what is the most efficient and what's worth investing in or, you know, where, how do you prioritize in your time and equipment and labor in the vineyard so that you have the biggest uh, benefit. And I don't think we have a clear answer to that yet, but it, it is promising and it is it does work basically to do these regenerative practices. I mean, the carbon in, increasing carbon in your soil is has the same effect financially really as, you know, turning the, the heat down in your house and using more efficient lights cuts your energy bill in half. The carbon in your soil is your bank, you know, putting more carbon in your soil or, you know, mm -hmm. building soil carbon makes your plants grow better. So, mm -hmm. it's, and, you know, there's a bunch of these things that we're talking about that um, also make your life better, right? Not just, yeah. it's not just making sacrifices to right. make the climate better, it actually makes your life better to you know eat more vegetables yeah. uh to have a lower power bill yeah. um to be on a bicycle more than in a car you know those yeah. things are all going to make your life better uh and just like regenerative farming putting building soil carbon makes your plants grow better makes you better at, at your job it makes you know um and i think that's you know a huge takeaway from from this for me yeah in general yeah. yeah are you aware of programs where you can buy or donate for carbon offsets because there's a lot of talk about that at the end of the the climate calculator. Yeah, and that's the one complaint I have about the cool climate calculator is that they emphasize offsets in a way that I don't think is accurate or appropriate. Um, because what the research shows is that about ninety three percent of the about ninety three percent of the carbon offset projects that have been done have not unfortunately led to measurable reductions. And the bottom line is that we have to get to zero emissions. That's going to be really, really, really tough. And any emissions that remain are going to have to be physically removed from the atmosphere with 
technology that doesn't exist at scale yet and may never be possible. It's essentially running the entire industrial revolution backwards. It's not a small thing to do. So we cannot count on it working. So that's why I think the offset concept is has really passed its time. And this idea of net zero where, yes, you know, if you think of the climate like a bathtub, the atmosphere like a bathtub, you have water coming in through the tap. That's our climate pollution from burning fossil fuels and disturbing nature. We have a drain, which is land and ocean that are taking up some of that carbon naturally. And today we have natural ecosystem services that are removing about half the carbon that humans add to the atmosphere. But as that, what we need to do is turn off the tap completely and also try to widen the, the drain to enhance natural sinks, to restore wetlands and forests, to have better agricultural practices. But it's just not going to be possible to keep the tap on and not have the tub overfill. Right. Great analogy. Yep. Have you heard some totally crazy shit where people have said <laughs> this is this is this crazy invention where we're going to remove carbon and we have these big machines that I mean have you been in have you sat at lectures or been in meetings where people have actually brought that kind of stuff up and said this this might be a possible solution? I mean people deep sigh <laughs> deep <laughs> sigh before that answer. Serious <laughs> people are talking about crazy shit. Like the the discourse has gotten actually crazy because we're not doing enough of turning off the tap, of leaving fossil fuels in the ground, of making this fast and fair transition to clean energy and reducing overconsumption. That's what we have to do. There's just no way around it. But people are still really focused. And we, we it would be great if we're able to also remove carbon and reverse some of the harm that's already been done. Yeah. But it definitely will not work to, at a large scale, I mean, basically, if you think about planting trees, humanity has cut down about half of the trees on Earth. So if we're planting trees now, we're making up for past deforestation. We're not offsetting continued harm. You know, when you're in a hole, the first rule is stop digging. So I do hear really crazy things that I think are are counterproductive and dangerous if they're overhyped because people, and there's studies showing that tech over-reliance on techno-salvation actually paralyzes action. If people feel like, oh, the engineers have got this, we'll just you know, invent our way out of it, yeah. it's not my responsibility. Yeah. And the thing is, we all have to take responsibility for what we can. Some of that is holding fossil fuel companies to account, some of that is holding politicians to account, some of that is doing what we can personally and professionally, and actually putting it into practice. I think the craziest thing that honestly scares me the most is this idea of solar geoengineering and that's the idea of trying to inject tiny particles in the atmosphere that would hopefully theoretically reflect incoming sunlight so it'd be a way to reduce temperature fuck yeah (laughs) this is a thing this is a thing you gotta remember that there's someone that will sell this shit to you so there's that's where this kind of stuff gets Get, gets crazy is because just cutting back on things in your life doesn't make anyone any money. But right. when you can come up with some sort of invention or or way Microscopic of fish scales, to right? Then the and you can sell that to someone, then that becomes very exciting. And then have an IPO 
right? Right. And then, you but know. A, but it's a green, it's a net, it's a carbon neutral IPO, right? <laughs> and then they go. every stock you sell, you plant a tree. Right. And, yeah. But the thing that's really scary about this is this is not like a fringe, you know, startup. This is yeah. governments. Yeah. This is like a serious, like the, the um, National Academies of Sciences, the top scientists in the U.S. have written a report about this now, and are because climate action is going too slow, and people argue there may come a point where the, you know, the harm from doing that might be less than the harm from uncontrolled catastrophic climate change, and I mean, there's so many problems with this. Like, it's it's so much better to get to the root of a problem and actually prevent it. I mean, think about health. I think about anything in our lives. Trying to clean up a mess is just always going to be so much more expensive, so much more risky, less effective than if preventing it in the first place. And another problem is that this would actually do nothing to the fundamental problem. So burning fossil fuels releases carbon, some of that, and about a quarter of it ends up in the oceans. So the oceans are acidifying, and this is a big problem for the abalones, which I love and grew up collecting in Walla, where I went with my family. All marine life, basically, that forms shells is like Elizabeth Colbert, the, the journalist, describes it as trying to build a house where someone keeps stealing your bricks. It basically gets harder to make these carbonate shells for these little critters in the oceans. And geoengineering, solar geoengineering, we do nothing about this, right? It's, it's not affecting the root problem. It would also be a permanent commitment to global screwing with the atmosphere yeah, and the climate. The because if you ever stop, there'll be a, it's called termination shock, an enormous rocketing up over a very short year, couple years of temperature. So a much more difficult and stressful experience to try to adapt to. So it's a really, really, really bad and crazy idea. Yeah. But and it would be way better to burn stuff that doesn't kill us or to stop burning the stuff that kills us. There are about yeah. seven, eight million people a year who die from burning fossil fuels. I always wonder what they do in those experiments up in space. You know, we send rockets. We used to send the shuttle up there and they'd always send scientists and, you know, they have all these different experiments that they do. I wonder if that was one of them where they're like taking crushed up diamond dust and <laughs> sprinkle it in the atmosphere. Let's see what happens. I don't think um, NASA has done this. So this hasn't been a space thing. There was a, solar geoengineering was or is under discussion. And there was a trial planned actually in Sweden a couple years ago that was actually canceled because of protests. So it hasn't been tested experimentally yet. Mm. Um, but the scary thing is that it it's possible for like a rogue state to do it. I mean, a billionaire or a rogue state could actually do it. <coughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not He's do that. he got the tools. Yeah. scary sounding. Right. Um, <laughs> Let's talk, you know, wine. How do you be a climate wine consumer? Yeah. Um, Let's bring it back to wine in a way back from to Elon wine. Musk. Yeah. In, <laughs> it would be emerald mine dust probably if oh, I was God. Elon and not diamonds because that's where it all comes from really. Um, yeah. Be a, be a climate wine buyer. How do you be a climate wine buyer? So we talked about packaging being important for producers because right. um, on scale, that makes a big difference. For consumers, I mean, I do choose lighter packaging. Um, however, it's, again, much more important to skip one flight and get whatever wine you want. You can drink 1,250 bottles of wine 
for the same carbon footprint as a round trip Holy flight. Holy shit. Yeah. That's a lot even for 1, this table. 1,250? Yeah. There you go. Excellent. Yeah. You know, it's at least at least a couple of weeks. That's where like, they're cancel like, your almost. flights. Don't come out and visit us. Just order a thousand cases of wine from winery16600.com. It's only yeah. 100 cases. It's, yeah. Only, yeah. it's only 100 cases. That's all yeah. we ask. <laughs> we love you, exactly. but we don't need to see you. Just... But actually, that is a huge one. Figuring out how to do better virtual visits, for example, and not and having less physical tourism from really far away would be huge. Well, no, the carbon footprint's on me because we're I'm here now because I'm visiting my family on my annual trip, and then I'm staying for a couple months to work at Stanford. So I've made a long trip to be here, and I'm glad we could meet in person. You did not induce me to take this. <laughs> I take full responsibility for. A, I just fly around uh, the world for an hour and a half. Yeah. it's no big. I planted trees before I went. It's no big deal. <laughs> I'm not sure you've been listening, Sam. <laughs> I haven't had a steak in years. <laughs> oh, wow. This is a lot to consume. Yeah. A lot to consume. How, can I ask you a question? Basically, we've spent an hour and a half unloading our climate mental states yeah. on you. And you spend your entire life in this stuff. Yeah. How do you cope? How do you, like, what are your, what are your, like, you know, how do you protect your own sanity spirit. and spirit and all of this yeah thank you for caring about me i appreciate that question i'm thinking about it a lot because it is a lot to cope with i'm thinking about investing in and protecting and enhancing my health and part of that is setting boundaries i think and and focusing my energy where i can make a difference and being able or willing to say no to things that i can't do um and i'm working on that and trying to get better I am thinking a lot about my own health, my physical and mental well-being. So trying to enjoy movement and being active, healthy food, getting enough sleep. I mean, the stuff your mom tells you, but is actually important and does really affect you. Time in nature is big for me, getting outside, really appreciating being here and, you know, having longer days and better weather and getting out for a walk uh, this morning with my sister and her dog, which was really lovely. So doing stuff too and recognizing that I need to do these things to take care of myself. Taking breaks. I mean, this is, I'm technically still on vacation. I made an exception for you, uh, but I, I'm on like a three week hiatus from social media, even reading media in general. I'm reading a novel right now, like just spending time playing cards with my dad and going on walks and like really taking a break. Um, I had a really good piece of advice from um, Elaine Chicken Brown. We had coffee yeah. the other day. The hawk, the hawk, yeah. waka waka, who, who yeah. scooped us on this podcast. I was only a little mad with her. Uh oh. Well, you know, she the the one of the last um, Elaine contributions to James Robinson obviously was uh, a podcast that they launched that they dropped with you uh, yeah. yesterday. So yeah. there's lots you can get. Lots, I'm sure. Um, we've talked about different things yeah. than um, all the smart people that were on that one. Um, but you can more the more the better for sure. I was yeah. joking with that, but um, you know we're on the same we're on the same stuff that Chances Robinson's on. Bart, we're doing right. something That's right. right. And, yeah, and, and Elaine's going to be on the show at the end of the month. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, oh, she's okay. coming back. We didn't get the advice. Oh yeah, thank oh, right. you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> Elaine, I hope I'm not like you know revealing her Elaine's secret here, but what no. what Elaine advised me, which I found so helpful, I'm going to try to put into practice, was when they're considering what um, opportunities to take, Elaine's considering two things. One, can I contribute? Will I make a valuable contribution here? And two, 
will I grow as a person? Will I learn from this and build relationships that I want to want to invest in? And I think I'm, I, I felt a little bit at the end of last year, like I was a bit depleted, like I'd been giving a lot, but I wasn't sure I wasn't learning and growing as much myself personally. So I think that's also part of my plan going forward is trying to be a bit more intentional in how I'm spending my time and, and do the things both that I enjoy. I mean, the, the, the sweet spot for climate is the things that you like doing, think are fun and that the world needs and that you're good at. So figuring out how to direct that towards climate action and making sure I maybe need to be having a little more fun and, you know, doing new things that I'm learning from and not, um, which I really value in these kind of conversations because then I get fresh perspectives and I'm learning something. Um, so thank you for giving Well, good. And, you know, um, enjoy this bottle of Chenin Blanc because you oh, probably haven't had beautiful. a lot of Chenin Blanc uh, lately. So um, yeah, as a new experience and a growing um, a growing experience for you. How Thank about that? You. You, you make Chenin Blanc? You know what? I got to get a word in edgewise with, you know, the two 16600 um, stereos in my ear. This looks really beautiful. Thank you. And what are you going to be doing? You're home and then you said you're going to go hang out at Stanford for a couple months? Hanging out. Pretty much. They've been very yeah. flexible. So I don't have a really set deliverable there. I mean, I have. Perfect. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't be admitting this. Um, That's it, pretty much been all of my experiences at Stanford also. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do much. <laughs> I didn't really. Just to show up. I think, I think they're giving me an concert. office. <laughs> I've rented a garage there. Housing prices are absolutely astronomical. So I'm paying 50% more than I do in Sweden for five times less space. Um, it should be fun. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> California. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You rented a garage. For... It's been renovated. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. There it you has go. a toilet now and a okay. sink and yeah you but you know 220 shower. feet me and, and my husband uh yes it has Good. a shower yeah. yes so i mean i think it's all we need and what i will be doing there is they've started this new school of climate and sustainability uh recently it's in september last year so a couple months ago and it's just getting off the ground and they're looking for collaborations new ideas um there are a lot of wonderful people there doing super interesting stuff i think california is so important as we were discussing earlier it's often a leader in the u.s and even globally in climate action. And I, I'm really interested in basically bringing the research to bear on informing decisions and inspiring action. So I think there's a lot of people there who are in the same place and hopefully we can develop stuff together. One thing I'm working on is a personalized climate action guide, kind of a choose your own adventure to help people like you identify their highest impact actions and start putting them into practice. So that that's something I've I got a bit of funding to do starting last year and is just getting underway so hopefully i can get input on that here the next time you're in town can we have you back on please next year. please yeah or maybe in two months when she comes to have a very fun wine tasting experience <laughs> right at exactly. many places in sonoma well, Sam, i was gonna say she's gonna be she has no real agenda at stanford she's gonna be hanging out <laughs> with these people trying to make positive changes um um on the planet why not if you guys are having some sort of party or dinner, can we send you guys some wine or can we drop off wine or can you oh, take gosh, wine for that? I don't know. We'll put okay. it on the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> I accept. Yes. You've twisted my arm. I mean, wow. <laughs> we'll, we'll carry it Sounds down. Sounds amazing. On e bike. Right. <laughs> right. I'm leaving exactly. Friday, so you know, yeah. you could load the ship right, now or maybe I'll maybe I'll be able to bring people up. Um what, Thank you. what is what is life in Sweden like? 
Um, is there more discussion about this in Sweden? I guess in my mind, everyone's a little more awake than we are here in the Utopias. United States. Yeah. Um, is is it is it spoken of? Yes, I think climate is more part of everyday conversations there than it is here. Um, although I'm in different bubbles there and here, so I don't want to draw too much of my own experience. But I think the data back that up. I think one big difference is media. I mean, U.S. media is doing a better job and and connecting the dots. So, for example, they are, really. Yeah, they are. They are. It has gotten better. I mean, there's something called the Society for Environmental Journalists who do really good work. Um, there's a nonprofit called Climate Outreach, which focuses on effective climate communication and principles, mm -hmm. tested principles of what works to engage people effectively. Um, I mentioned the Yale Center for Climate Communication does really good stuff. So there, there, it is getting better, but I think here in the U.S., but I do think that in Sweden and, and for a longer time there, it's just been more integrated so for example there was a, a newspaper near me that had an issue where everything was about climate so all the stories finance sports fashion politics everything was told through a climate lens or had a climate perspective and i think that we really need to go in that direction to not make you know this kind of we, we need strong climate reporters with deep expertise but we also need to you know in the spirit of making all jobs a climate job make everybody feel empowered and responsible and, and have the opportunity to talk about climate and connect those dots in their line of work. So if you're a finance reporter or, you know, if you're writing about different topics that you can actually include that angle and make it meaningful for your readers. Every podcast is a climate podcast. Yes. Right. Love it. I mean, I mean, to yeah. some extent, you know, yeah. And I think, well, and it's one of those, it, it's, uh, you know, the difference between thinking you're not racist and being anti-racist, right? If right. you're not actually doing something, you're doing something by not doing something, right? Uh -huh. If 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 you're not actively talking about this or, like, trying to find all these incremental ways in your life, well, then you're actively contributing more carbon than you should. Right. If you're not on, you know, every podcast, whether it's a wine podcast or what trying to find ways to bring this into the conversation well then you're actively not talking about it right. and, and pushing it further you know to the back burner so. right yeah it's good it's good amen all right what a fascinating yeah. uh conversation thank you so very very much thank it's you very all. appreciated and I'm sure all of our listeners will appreciate it. All around the country and in 30 and 30, different, 30, 30 different really? countries. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Well, what a great way to reach people in a low carbon way and build this community and get these words oh, out. We go. Love it. That's what we thought of. That's why we were doing That's this. why you're doing totally. it. Got it. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed thank it. Thank you for thank, taking the time. Thank you for setting a very high bar for the yeah. children of Norbaum Road. <laughs> 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 totally don't resent it at all. <laughs> thank you. Um, Maybe you guys can share a car on the way back up. Yeah. <laughs> I got dropped off. I got a ride. I, and my husband's walking down to meet me now. Find, find a, a you know, big white truck that's heading up the hill and grab on the back. Right. And drop you off Jump on road. the bumper. <laughs> There's a lot of us. Um, I, I, I got a quick shout out. Um, so you guys uh, found out yesterday and today we have two new members of our uh, uh, Chef Cycle team. Oh. Um, oh, Mr. Sam Katuri has officially thrown 
or I climbing a, on the bike. I, I paid a hundred dollars and, and going to do chef cycle yep. and James Joyner. I just yep. got an email. James also joined. So team our, our team vomit is growing quickly. Um, Sam, I'm excited for you. Chef cycle is. So chef cycle is uh, no kid hungry is the charity. And every year, um, the first year I did it, there were 300 chefs from all over the country that came to Sonoma and rode 300, a hundred miles, three days in a row. Wow. And it's all in name of raising money to feed kids. Oh, that's so awesome. that first year we raised almost $2 million. Wow. Congrats. Um, and it goes directly to feeding kids. So, um, this year we formed a little team. There's a couple of local chefs and, uh, and Sam's jumped in. So it's awesome. awesome. For the record, uh, there's a new yes. route where you Here can do <laughs> two days of a hundred kilometers each day, <laughs> which that, sounds that doesn't, way more, but, uh, but that and, doesn't and matter. I'm going to yeah. be racing Dusky Estes for who's going to be DFL. Who gets the, who gets yeah. the police ex, the police escort at the yeah. end because right. you're bringing up the caboose. The great thing about it is Sam is everybody's standing there waiting for you. Well, that's all I really know? want anyway. In life. <laughs> because Just we don't eat until the last person's in. You know, I closed out a marathon course in France where they have very rigorous time limits. And I had to argue in my 200 word vocabulary of French that they had to let us keep doing it. So I've been the last person on a course and it was still an awesome experience. I'm looking forward to it. I I did, um, I used to do a mountain bike race up in Annadale and we were in this one section and there's this, I could hear this guy behind me for like miles. And I said, this is a good place to go around me. Just go around. He goes, no, no. He goes, I'm good. I said, no, please go around me. He goes, no, I'm the sweeper. And I was like, what does that mean? And he goes, I'm the sweeper. And I go, okay, take my number and go around me. (laughs) So I've been there. You've been swept. I've been swept. Do I dare ask uh, the um, team Vomit how you got that name? So that is um, a nod to the old Benziger ski trip that was an all-guys trip for 22 or 23 years, just a one-day ski cr- ski trip, Valley of the Moon intense training. There you go. Okay, there you go. <laughs> you, That's I would also, I want to jump in because I didn't know if you guys were going to do it or not for you real. You want to get on the bike also? Totally. Oh, wow. And I'm volunteering because I know he wants to do it. Uh, Jared Reeves, the executive chef at the right. Fairmont, he didn't think he could get a team together there. He was wondering if we were forming a team and he wanted to join. Okay. So. Awesome. Cool. More people to be for me to be behind. Right. (laughs) Well, and think about like the fundraising event we can have with, you know, wines. It'll be antithetical to training for a hundred mile bike ride, but yes, we'll have a good time. (laughs) You know what? At this French marathon, the night before, so they sent all the instructions were in French, and their training diet was heavily cheese based so it's like a very serious analysis of which cheeses should you be eating at which stage in your marathon training yeah and then yeah but in one ounce daily service yeah yeah i don't know if they got that but you're right that's the climate view yes i have a big thumb yeah (laughs) yeah and then they the night before at the pre-party there was a table of kenyan runners who were world-class athletes and taking it very seriously and we're going to run like a two hours or something ridiculous but then the normal humans were all drinking tons of wine which like is not the vibe in the u.s so it's like wow okay this is a different but they still all the laurents who had these super short shorts still completely kicked my ass on the course <laughs> but remember athletes now going back and watching these sort of things on espn where you see 
um, basketball players or baseball players talking about how people were like smoking in the dugout or in the in the in the locker room yeah, it opens we, up your lungs and makes it so we just always more. think of athletes as being you know on this bike hooked up to electrodes trying to get maximum performance but you know there's a great history of people that were just everyday people that um that happened to have skills and um and still didn't drop their vices sam i mean the tour de france <laughs> there's pictures of the tour de france that aren't that old um of of smoking, of, of smoking and, totally and riding so that that picture that i post that's a guy you know pouring a bottle of Chianti into a glass while he's racing, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I was born for this. Totally. <laughs> Amazing. It's going to be awesome. Right? Good luck. Sounds like a really wonderful cause and fun team. Um, can we also get a shout out and also a, a congratulations to you, Bart, and you, Sam. Um, MJ Towler, our friend, uh, the black wine guy, did his list. Was it 75? His top 75 oh, so wines of, 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 of 2022. Oh. And uh, Bart... Uh, was not in both you guys were in the top 10 Barton uh, number 10 I believe yeah. for the uh, Rossi Ranch Grenache and then Sam number 8 for the Adutet Rossi Ranch uh, and just Grenache. a and bottle then, of Northern Rhone in the middle yeah just, just a bottle of some sort of Chevy Jean Louis I didn't know GM made one right Chevy right yeah Chevy yeah yeah. Congrats. Uh, thank you. And then shout out to to MJ uh, for being in Imbibe, uh, the Imbibe magazine, um, and getting a little mention for being influential. Um, so always. Um, we knew him. We knew him when. Way back when. Way back when. I'm actually about to go record yeah. our uh, DTC symposium keynote so that they have it a, a digital version uh, ahead of uh, what we're doing in a few weeks down there in Concord. So about to get on a Zoom and and hang out with MJ and talk about the power of podcasts and, and selling wine. We got a great month. We're Jasmine and I are going to be at eco farm. And, right. um, now we're all going to be at eco farm. I don't, <laughs> it's possible. We may all be at eco farm now that we have a hookup at Pebble beach. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then our first Magnum dinner is going to be on the 26th of January, which, uh, Jared, the chef we spoke of is putting together a menu for us. So it's going to be, you guys remember, I, I can carry bags. I can, you know, I, you I do I need a caddy. They wine. actually, they actually say you have to have a caddy. Yeah. So we pour wine and hand us our cigarettes so we can be our peak athletic performance. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks for time and taking time out to, uh, you know, away from your family and um, to come hang out with us and drop some knowledge. Yeah, we do appreciate it. it. And hopefully we can get, you you know, we think of in California as being a little bit of a bubble here. Um, But it is nice. We do have a lot of listeners around the country and, and, um, and just to change a few uh, minds and maybe change a few routines. A um, little inspiration. A little inspiration um, is always good. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Happy, Happy New Year. Year.